Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the general manager of the New York Yankees, Brian Cashman. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with the general manager and senior vice president of the New York Yankees. During his tenure, he's won six pennants and four World Series championships. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Cashman. Cash, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. And Cash, they give you they give you credit for four World Series. I think you have five. You're the assistant in 96. That should count. Uh, well, yeah, but that's on Bob Watson's watch. But I do have a ring, which I'm really uh, obviously glad. That was, you know, leading up to that point, you know, I never thought it was one of those things where, like, uh, that'll never happen for, for me or in the us. And and then 96, the magical year happened. Very cool. Uh, you're a man of adventure. I saw you and my brother scaling buildings, Spider-Man. Uh, what's next on your list? I know you like to do stuff like that. If you, I'll, I'll, I'll make it easy. You had, you had one free day, do any activity. What are you going to do? I guess anywhere in the world. Anywhere. I wouldn't mind. Yeah. I wouldn't mind trying that, uh, you know, getting into a cage, uh, you know, with the great white sharks, you know, I assume that would be probably down in Australia, you know, uh, where you, you go out, I don't know how far out in the, ocean and they drop you in a scuba out the shark you know protected cage and kind of kind of watch you know uh up close that i think that would be pretty cool i'll tell you when i was a little kid and and aaron could probably tell you about this dad got a wild hair and he started getting into this scuba diving and i'm a little kid so he, he <laughs> i go down to the ymca and i get you know i get uh, certified patter or Nowie, I forget what it was, but I w- it, it was like, I didn't want to do it. I was living in Jersey at the time. It was always cold, but I said, Oh, you know, dad wants me to, and he used to drag me around. Then we moved to Southern California. <laughs> we had a boat and we'd go out and it's like, Hey Brett, we're going scuba diving tomorrow. Now scuba diving. When we go to Maui or something, that's great. You put on a half suit, got everybody taking care of your equipment. But when you're a scuba diver, you got to clean the equipment, you get it down. And he would take me over to, uh, to Catalina Island. And I just was that kid that I didn't want to do it, but it's dad. And he puts me in this silver, silver wetsuit. And I go down and I can see the, you know, the visibility is about five feet. And this great white swims by me about five feet away, you know, probably 10 or 12 feet long. And that's the last time I scuba dived. So you're more adventurous than I am. Well, I, I did get certified by Patty also, but I have not ever had a, and I don't have time now since I became the GM to even go scuba diving. So we're talking 20 years now gone by, but never had that experience probably. And I don't want that experience. I want a cage between. <laughs> you want the cage. You, you want white. the jaws. Oh, the yeah. jaws. I want, I want the cage between me and a bull shark, a great white, you know, all those, you know, all those kind of, you know, if it was by choice, but, uh, but scuba is pretty cool too at the same time. All right. You're born in Rockville Center, New York, raised in Washingtonville. Uh, baseball fan growing up. You're a Dodger fan. Summer camps with Bucky Dent. Uh, I want to hear about Brian Cashman as a kid. What was it like growing up? Uh, 
what'd you play? It was baseball. You play other sports? Definitely baseball. You know, I grew up, uh, I started in New York and then moved to Kentucky. Um, you know, and uh, so I kind of feel like my, my four Kentucky. And, uh, uh, and then I wound up uh, my last two years in, of high school in, in a George, at Georgetown Prep in Washington, D.C. I played baseball, loved, the, loved clearly baseball through, you know, uh, all through college. Uh, I played football through high school. Uh, my senior year, at least they asked me to go out because of my speed. I'd never played football in my life, and I wanted to start my senior year uh, on our football team, which was – that was a blast. And then, um, you know, I ran track, basketball, so I did all of that stuff. Um, but baseball was my, my uh, passion. Dodgers were your team. 82, you got to be the bat boy down in, I think it was Vero Beach. Lasorda was the skipper. How'd that come about? I, I, from what I read, it was Ralph Branca was a, was a family friend. Yep. Uh, Ralph and Ann Branca, uh, Ralph Branca, who, uh, you know, was a legendary Brooklyn Dodger. You know, he, he actually is a rookie. Uh, I think he held the rookie record for most wins as a rookie starter in the National League until Tom Browning broke it as a Cincinnati Red in the 80s. Uh, uh, you know, then he was a very, obviously, uh, a hell of a starter back in his day, uh, but he's remembered for giving up the shot that heard around the world to Bobby Thompson, um, in that legendary Giants, uh, Dodgers game. And he wound up marrying the owner of the Do- Brooklyn Dodgers daughter, uh, and Branca, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure what her married name was before, but but she obviously became Ann Branca, Ralph's wife, and so they were a family friend, and they knew how crazy of a Dodger fan I was, and they knew how crazy of a thing. I used to visit my grandmother in spring training every year down in West Palm Beach. I'd go to the West Palm Beach Expo games in the summer times to the Florida State League. I'd go to the Expo Braves spring training site because they shared a facility in West Palm back in the day. And so I uh, got a chance to see, you know, all the teams running through, including your dad. Um, and, uh, and when the dust settled, all of a sudden I got an opportunity when I was a kid to be a bat boy for the day at Vero Beach. And, uh, you know, that was obviously amazing. I remember playing catch with Bobby Welch and sort of yelling at me from the, from the dugout to, you know, the sprint every time he says, I want you to get that bat before it hits the ground. <laughs> and so he was all over me the entire game, but it was an amazing experience. And he was, he, he and the entire Dodger crew were welcoming and, and really, uh, really nice to me. And, and to this day, you know, Tommy, God rest his soul. He always took credit for my start in the game. He said, uh, that was my former bat boy. And he said, he got my, 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 uh, my baseball career going, uh, back, back in the day as a bad boy. All I remember about Vero Beach is there was no shade in the dugout. So the sun would beat on you all day. But that's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a iconic uh, spring training facility before they shut it down in Dodger land. Um, yep. Your dad was a horseman, and we had a chance to talk off air uh, a few days ago. I uh, managed managed Castleton Farms, uh, raising standard breads for harness racing. And it, it takes when we were having that conversation, it takes me back to my childhood and my grandpa. And it wasn't harness racing, but he, he introduced me to the horses at a young age. And, you know, I just remember going to Del Mar and I was fascinated with the horses. And he used to take me to the barn and, <clears throat> excuse me, meet the trainer and meet the jockey and, you know, learn how they train and what they do and what they eat. I, I always 
always loved it. I still I, I still love it to this day. Uh, but you said you, you moved to Lexington, Kentucky. And I think you said it's it's probably the best thing that ever happened to you. Uh, you went to Georgetown Prep there. You played hoops and baseball. Um, take me through that, like, because we had a similar we had a similar path. I mean, right before right when I got to high school, I, I, I was living in Jersey and my dad got traded to the Angels. And, you know, as kids, we're we're 13, 14 years old and we're going, I'm not moving to Southern California. All my buddies are here. I'm a Jersey kid. Uh, I went kicking and screaming and it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me as well, because I got to Southern California. The opportunities were there. I got to play year round. And uh, I didn't know when, you know, when I was back in Jersey, we, we didn't like the California people. Everything was, oh, surf's up and we're not going to move out there. But it ended up being uh, the best thing that ever happened to me. Tell me why that was uh, something you thought was beneficial for you. Well, I mean, I, you know, I really didn't have any experience there. I, dro- I got dropped into, you know, this remote horse farm just outside of Lexington, Kentucky, and kind of got indoctrinated into the, you know, the Midwest or Southern, you know, experience. So I started developing a love of country music, uh, the Kentucky Wildcat basketball program, which is, you know, second to none in the entire state. You know, basically it's, you got to fall in line as at the time was the most famous, uh, uh, major league player that came from Lexington was Doug Flynn, uh, the former Red and New York Mets uh, infielder, second baseman. Um, but you know, my dad broke every child labor law in the country. He put me to work right on that horse farm, really young, and you know, I got a chance to to learn, you know, you know, the real, you know, uh, what it meant to be, you know. Uh, you know, committed. Uh, what you know, showing up early, waking up early on the farm farm like Yellowstone. It was a beautiful place, you know, but, but it was just like, Hey, it's massively hard work. And you're, you're obviously up at the crack of dawn taking care of a pure horse farm. I, you know, I bounced around every year to a different aspect of the farm. One year I was working the receiving barn, you know, where they brought in the, the new horses coming into the farm. One year I worked, uh, 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 with the veterinarian detail. One year I worked garbage detail and, you know, uh, so I got spread all over the place doing everything and anything. And, you know, I got appreciation of, of, uh, you know, what it was like to be, you know, you know, certainly counted on and committed and doing, you know, labor that, uh, that, you know, most don't. And, you know, one of the great experiences I had was I had an opportunity to break in a quarter horse. Um, you know, that was a memory of a lifetime where you spend weeks and weeks and weeks of, of breaking in a horse that's never been ridden before and, and then bonding with the horse and, you know, it starts out in the, in the stall and then eventually you, you get into a paddock and eventually out into a field. And then after I was done, you know, and I was sent off to boarding school, uh, my junior year of high school, you know, uh, I started getting word that the horse wouldn't let any problem. But, but just hearing that was pretty cool where you can bond with, you know, the horse's name was Nifty and, and uh, Nifty was used to me and me alone and, and anybody else, uh, Nifty was bucking away, uh, get off. You're not, I'm not used to you. I don't want you on me. And, um, and that was pretty cool. But, but, you know, it was a, it was just a great opportunity for me to really, you know, get exposed, you know, grow up even further because as you know, you're moving to an, an entire new experience, an entire new state forced to meet new people. I think it hones your, your ability to uh, learn how to, you know, uh, adjust, evolve. Um, and, uh, and so again, you know, I think uh, that experience, you know, is something I'll, 
never forget. And all the, uh, I always draw on a lot of my work experience, even to this day on things I learned right there, the basics right there on the horse farm. Um, and it was a great industry. My dad, you know, was, uh, was someone that, you know, worked his way up the ladder in the harness business. He started as a race secretary in Long Island and he grew up out of Long Island and, and, uh, harness driver, a harness trainer, a harness administrator. And, and, uh, and he kind of crafted a, a, you know, a very successful career in the harness racing industry, which was thriving back in his day and, and ultimately led him to the harness, uh, racing hall of fame. So uh, I'm really proud of what my father was able to accomplish while he was with us. And, uh, and he loved horses and there's, there's a lot of similarities to, you know, scouting baseball players and he was scouting horses and there's things, you know, based on his experience that he could watch a horse and know, you know, it's weaknesses. And there was, you know, a lot of similarities to watching Gene Michael, for instance, break down, break down baseball players and my dad breaking down horses and just kind of the lingo and the language and the nuances were not too dissimilar, you know, you know, people product of their own environments and their own world. And, uh, things again, I fall back on, uh, that serves me to this day. Yeah. I think that's cool. Cause in, in, you know, what we do and, you know, uh, in baseball is that's what we do. We evaluate it's, you know, it's been something my whole life. That's all I've done is, is been in this game and my family's been in the game and it's easy for me to look at a player and look at the nuances and look at the, you know, look for, for tells on what I, what I think to give my evaluation, but you, you talking about your dad, it's a different world. I, I mean, it would be like me coming in uh, to the farm and, and saying, all right, you know, Mr. Cashman, tell me about that horse. What makes him different from that one? I, I think that's fascinating, not just with horse horses, but, but in different, different avenues of life, you know, something you don't know a lot about something you're not that, that, well-educated in. I think it's cool. The people that are, they can teach you the ropes and what to look for. So that's very cool. And by the way, I got a couple seniors in high school that I'd like to send to that horse farm because they could, they could use what you were talking about, the discipline and the accountability. Uh, I think it's great for kids to, to have that growing. I'm trying to get them to make their bed and they still won't do it. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, different times back then, but, uh, but again, like, I don't know if it was by design, you know, my dad, uh, you know, making that happen for me and, and, uh, and making sure I got, you know, the foundation and discipline and commitment and follow through. And then also, you know, but that, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, like if you're on the farm, you're partnered up with someone, you know, so essentially they're, you want know, to developing a camaraderie, a teammate situation where you're assigned certain tasks, you got to get them done. And, um, you know, on behalf of, you know, you know, the foreman and just amazing, a lot of amazing experiences that, uh, that I had over the years on that horse farm and, you know, um, you know, whether earth and being a part of that, you know, but there's been certain, certainly some accidents that happened on the farm and some tragedies and it's just it's life. And, uh, um, but, you know, one I was again uh, had a front row seat uh, to my dad's world, and and uh, it was obviously really uh, impactful and meaningful. Go to the Catholic University of America. You're a four year starter. You had the most hits in a season. I don't know if that's been broken since. You're you're, you're a second sacker. You're you're a second baseman. Um, I want to hear your scouting evaluation of you 
was a hard trier. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, I swing, I, you know, I, uh, more of an offensive player than a defensive player. Uh, you know, I played second for three years. I was a four-year starter, played second for three years, uh, moved to center my senior year. Um, I, uh, I drove my coach crazy because I knew – I knew I wasn't really, you know, when the secondary pitches started flying, you know, uh, obviously once I got to college, I started seeing a split finger fastball for the first time every now and then, you know, obviously breaking balls, sliders, curveballs, stuff like that. I didn't want to get in a position where, you know, pitchers are ahead of the count on me and they could start mixing and matching. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was the leadoff hitter for four straight years, saw the best pitch of the game, which is a fastball right down the middle. I used my size to my advantage. I, I know that pitchers are up there on the mound looking at, you know, I'm five foot seven. Uh, I just over with quick, and they're going to just come right at me, and I could hit a fastball. And so I would, I would pound it. Uh, I wouldn't wait. My coach would, you know, it's opposite of what I am in the, in the, you know, front office world now, where you're taught about plate discipline, working the count, making sure you get the best pitch, blah blah blah. I get that, but I also knew what my my weaknesses were. But early on, my my, my uh, college baseball coach Ross Natoli, it was his first year. It was my first year there. He's still there, actually, and um, is the all-time leading uh, winning coach. He uh, he would confront me all the time. You got to take pitches. You got to show the rest of the lineup what this guy's repertoire is. I argue back. He's showing it in the warm-up pitches. He's showing everything he's got and what he's in his warm-ups. They can watch that. I'm not giving my at bat away. I'm if I get a pitch that's the best pitch of the at bat. It happens to be the first pitch. I'm hacking, and I tell you what, I I was really good at it. I usually led games off with doubles or triples because basically I just felt like they were sleeping at the switch, thinking it's an automatic take. I used to watch Don Mattingly, you know, years later, and he was notorious taking the and and he never offered at the first pitch. And I was always wondered, you know, he just wanted to get a feel for it. But he obviously was a skilled hitter. I wasn't. But uh, but I was like, oh, he could do so much damage because uh, I think it was a scouting. The scouting reports essentially were like, hey, you can at least get ahead, even though he still didn't help pitching to Don Mattingly that way. But in my case, getting behind was a problem because if I started getting into that scenario where you're starting to see the secondary stuff flying, um, it was going to put me in a weaker position. So um, third trier, I had speed. Uh, um, then on the defensive side and uh, – yeah, but I had I had a good run. That the the record the hit record has been broken. A guy named John Douglas, who uh, who got drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, much bigger physical guy than I was, a shortstop. Um, you know, he he wound up breaking the record uh, a number of years later. Uh, and so uh, so I didn't even know I had the record to be honest for for quite some time because you know back then we didn't have a sports information director. I just remember reading in the USA Today over the course of time they looked. Leaders in Division One, Two, and Three uh, throughout the country, and every week I'm like, I'm not listed, but I should be in the top ten because I knew what I was doing, and and uh, you know, we just didn't have an SID, <laughs> so they weren't compiling the numbers. So once they eventually did, years later after graduation, my junior year, they uh, they circled back like, dude, you had a hell of a year, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, I know I did well, but but uh, I didn't know I did that well. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? 
Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E. Bet $1 on either team to score and win $100 in free bets. If they score... You score with promo code Boone this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Brian Cashman. I think through the horse trip, through through being a horseman, I think uh, your dad and and the boss Steinbrenner became buddies over the years. Eighty six, you interned with the Yankees, and I was interested when you were there. You're now you're currently playing baseball. Um, what are you thinking? What are you thinking about your future at that point? Nineteen eighty six, interning with the Yankees. Yeah, that came out of uh, the blue. I a real quick story on that. So I was playing down in uh, in Florida with our with Catholic University's baseball team. We played Princeton University during the day, uh, but the night before, back then, no cell phones, no ATMs. You know, uh, you're talking about the mid '80s, and uh, I lost all my meal money in a high low card game. You know, uh, I was like queen two, and I'm like all in, and here comes the ace and crushes me. So I call home. And my, uh, the owner of the horse farm owned a place called Pompano Racetrack, which also was under the umbrella of the farm, Castleton Farms. So we played Princeton at Little Fenway in Boca Raton, and Pompano Racetrack was out of the next town over. So my dad said, hey, if you can get over to Pompano Racetrack, we'll get you a meal, uh, and uh, I'll have them get you some, some money to, to you know, tide you over the rest of the trip. And so... Uh, I went over and Alan Finkelson was the PR director of Papa Racetrack and he had a Yankee World Series ring. He had all these Yankee pictures on the wall. And so he, he essentially was, you know, a huge Yankee fan. And I said, Hey, where'd you get that ring? And he was best friends of George Steinbrenner. Um, and so, you know, we started talking over the dinner that night and then he said, Hey, you know, what are you doing this summer? I was going to play in the summer, try to play in the Shenandoah, Shenandoah Valley Summer League in Virginia. Uh, if at all possible and in between my college seasons. And he said, what if I can get you an internship with the Yankees? And I was like, I'd be all in. So next thing you know, he told me to get him a letter. He'd get it over to George Steinman or his buddy who lived in Tampa. And that's how it developed. I wound up with a minor league, uh, an internship in the minor league scouting department during the day. And I worked security at night at the old Yankee stadium and uh, worked for Bobby Hoffman, who was the player development director. He was a former utility player in the back in the day and, uh, and Brian Sabian was uh, an area scout for us at the time and eventually became our amateur scouting director. I remember Joel Altabelli was on our major league coaching staff and 
clearly uh, a lot of great Yankees on the field of play back then, you know, whether it was Dave Winfield or Don Mattingly and, you know, Ricky Henderson might have been there at the time. He definitely was there during the time I was there, you know, uh, but, you know, Phil Rizzuto and Billy Martin are up in the broadcast booth and it just, it was pretty, you know, pretty crazy to be walking down the hallway or at times running through these people and uh, it was, but I never expected it to lead to anything. I was just doing a summer job and, and, uh, and that's all I thought I was doing at the time. Finish and you graduate in 89 and uh, you go to work for the Yankees, baseball operation assistant. Um, you know, a lot of players and, and, and athletes that I talk to, when we get to the big leagues on the player side, you know, there's usually a guy that, that, that you can point to, maybe not necessarily a mentor, but somebody that kind of took, uh, took you under their wing. For me, I came up with the Mariners and it was Jay Buhner who kind of looked after me, you know, and give me a hard time. And, and it was tough love, but, but when the smoke cleared, he'd, he'd, he'd buy me a new suit. He'd take me out for a nice steak. He'd, he'd give me the, the keys to an apartment, an extra apartment that he had. So we all have guys like that. Uh, in the profession that you're entering now in 89, did you have a guy that kind of took you under your wing? Under I did, their wing? I did. And, and, and before I even got there, so like I'm graduating from Catholic U and I have choices to make. I was planning to go to law school, potentially. I was going through the LSATs. Working between my fall and spring baseball seasons in college for UPS, UPS offered me a full-time job. And if I stayed in it, I think it was for 90 days or more, there was a 2,500 signing bonus. You'd have to be part of the Teamsters. And, and there, there was a bonus that, you know, if you stayed in that job that long. And that back then was a lot of money. I was making, I think, eight bucks an hour working UPS in the wintertime. And, uh, and then out of the blue, this Yankee thing came. And uh, as a full-time, it was basically the, the, the lowest-level employee on the baseball ops side above uh, an intern. And, uh, just, you know, an assistant baseball operations position, the glorified intern position, essentially. Uh, and... I was like, you know, I'll just do that. But the, the mentor side of it, when I, when I was interning and it started out in that lowest level, is at the time was an assistant general manager named Peter Janison. He was extremely intelligent, bright, knew all the rules and regulations, did all the contract uh, details and, and at times negotiations for on behalf of the many general managers that were coming and going under George Steinbrenner, uh, I believe. At that time, Woody Woodward and uh, Clyde King uh, were a tag team uh, in the front office uh, back at that point, and then uh, ultimately leading through a number of different ones, from Bob Quinn uh, to Sid Thrift. Uh, I think those are the general managers I got exposed to, um, you know, in, my, in, the, in the first three or four years. But it was usually every year somebody different. Um, and uh, but Peter Jamison took me under his wing to t- start teaching me clearly the administrative side of the game. And and back then, you know, because George Steinbrenner was so difficult to work for. I mean, he was you know someone you couldn't please. He was a perfectionist. Uh, you know, every day was you know going to be a battle. Uh, we as Yankee employees were always just trying to do everything we possibly could to necessary to try to, you know, honor the, uh, the demands of the day coming from the top, which was, you know, a legendary owner, a Titan of industry and George Steinbrenner. Yeah. It had to, man, as a player that never played for the Yankees, but, but played against you guys quite a bit. I always looked at the Steinbrenner and, and, and I thought, you know, 
<laughs> you, I'm sure it's a lot and you got to put up with a lot. You might be reading your your name on the front page with George having something to say about you if you if you weren't playing well. But I always thought as a player, I could handle that. I played for Marge Shot. That was a whole different, you know, interesting experience for me. But the one thing they both had in common is at the end of the day, it was all about no matter what, I'm just trying to win. And it might be a rough way of going about it, but as players, we have such a, a small window uh, in this game to, to play at that, you know, to play in the major leagues that uh, we appreciate so much when we know, uh, we know that front office and, and all the way up to the owner has your back and we'll do anything it takes to win. I always respected that. And I liked that. And I thought, you know, I could put up with the criticism, the harshness, uh, you know, just the way he was, because I, I only have a, a, a short time to win. And, uh, you know, I got to some World Series, but I but I never got to win one. But I always appreciated that part of him. I never met George. Uh, obviously, you know what it was like working for him. It might be a different animal uh, on the administrative side. But, um, yeah, I always found that fascinating. Uh, 1990, Steinbrenner gets suspended. Was, and Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I'd, I'd always, you know, I grew up in that environment. So, so it was something I was kind of used to, but I always got – I won't say a kick out of it, but I always saw people that had, you know, he, he would, he was always interested in hiring the best and, and, and plucking away greatness from somewhere else, anywhere that was having success. I'm going to pull that person in and they're going to help fix us. In the eighties, the Yankees didn't have a, uh, a very good run. Um, you know, uh, in the end of the seventies, not like we did in the nineties. And so there was that decade of, of, uh, of frustration and change and, managers and general managers, but I always got a, you know, a kick out of people coming in to this environment. And I think they had the attitude of, you know, they had success elsewhere and they were imported here and they knew of the legend of George Steinbrenner and, uh, and how difficult you know, he could be at times to work for or at all times to work for. And, uh, some of these individuals being imported were like, I know what he did to them, but he won't do that to me. But it was, you know, it was always a rude awakening as they kind of tried to adjust to the to the the sprint of being a general manager or a manager for the New York Yankees because this environment was like no other. And I, I I don't think if you didn't grow up in it or come up through it, I think it would be hard to just jump on like a just just imagine a treadmill running at super hyper. You might be an expert runner, but then trying to go from zero to you know, a thousand miles an hour. Uh, usually it's going to be a pretty ugly crash and burn. Uh, and so, you know, there was an adjustment period for the, for the imports that uh, in most cases, you know, really couldn't adjust because they were already used to some other type of environment that they had success in. And, and it was very difficult for them. You know, um, it was expected for me because again, I grew up in it. Um, but uh, it, it you know, he, he, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. You know, he definitely, he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, and I'm still waiting for that day to happen, hopefully sooner than later, because he's put some people in the Hall of Fame that belong there too. Uh, but he belongs right alongside him. 1990, Steinbrenner gets suspended. Uh, I think your workload kind of increases. You were asked to do a little bit more. Then in 92, you, you mentioned uh, Gene Michael, Stick Michael, uh, names you the assistant, uh, the assistant general manager. Um, and now you're kind of your your career's starting to take 
some shape. Like now you kind of know where you're headed. Um, how was that transition? Yeah, I like I essentially went from you know a couple things happened along the way. Uh, back then, the, the the minor league scouting departments were run out of New York, and then George Steinbrenner took over the old Redlands in Tampa, where he resided, and uh, and he moved the entire amateur scouting and uh, player development program to Tampa. And that was my first big break where uh, moved down. They didn't want to relocate. So some people turned down the opportunity, which kicked it my way. Uh, and I was offered to become the assistant farm director and moved to Tampa. And I worked for Mitch Lukovic, uh, who's our farm director at the time. And, um, and he's now been with Tampa Bay for a long time and a very impactful uh, direct player development director. And he's had a lot of success with the Rays. And so, um, so I worked down there for, for three years in that category and Gene Michael lived there. So I got exposed to Gene Michael, uh, became friends. He was always watching our instruction rookie Gulf coast league Yankee teams. And, um, and we have players and tryouts or meetings going on, you know, in the wintertime where we're talking about free agents and things of that nature. So I got a chance to build a relationship with one of the game's great evaluators. Uh, Gene Michael was a former player for George Steinbrenner, a former manager for George Steinbrenner, a former general manager for George Steinbrenner. By the time I met him, the former scout for George Steinbrenner, he developed into a, a confidant, someone that Gene, you know, George Steinbrenner needed to have around him at all times. But like mo- many employees though, you know, it wasn't always something that, you know, uh, the boss was ever comfortable with. So we developed a relationship. And then when, when George Steinbrenner got uh, wrapped up in some things that Faye Vincent, uh, you know, uh, banishing him from baseball, he tapped Gene Michael to take over as general manager in his absence because he trusted. And Gene Michael asked if I would be willing to move back to New York, be the assistant general manager. And, and, uh, and even at that point, I, I was like, yes. And my job was again, uh, on um, but, uh, but never thought of like, it's going to lead. I never at this point even thought it was going to lead to a career in this game. I was never plotting or planning or expecting to have any, it was more like, oh, I'll keep doing this until I get a real job. Uh, and, uh, but the Tampa experience uh, moving there was a game changer in hindsight because I got exposed to the amateur draft. I got exposed to, uh, the administrative side of running seven minor league affiliates and running our winter ball program, running our immigration uh, visa program, um, all aspects of baseball operations. Brian Sabian, who's, you know, a future Hall of Fame general manager, uh, you know, he, he helped build uh, with uh, Bill Livesey and a lot of people, you know, what ultimately became the foundation for the future Yankee success in the 90s with their drafts and signs. And then Gene Michael finished it off from the general manager's chair. Uh, so I, I wound up having a front row seat to some really spectacular people, uh, it, uh, you know, that, that at the time weren't recognized as, as elite in, in their fields. But now after what's transpired, uh, they are recognized as, as the best of the best. And George Steiner had, you know, assembled an amazing team and that team that he assembled were putting together some amazing talented rosters that ultimately would serve the Yankee fans well, uh, late in the future. So you go to 95, Bob Watson uh, gets tapped as the next general manager. You'll, you'll be the assistant under him. We mentioned in the opening 90, 96, uh, you guys win the world series and he hadn't won one for a while. Um, Matt comes following the 97 season. Here's where, here's where you get your shot. Did you have, after that 97 season, do you have an inkling that, that you were in line and, and you were going to get that job? How does, how did that come about? 
Yeah, I was caught off guard completely. Obviously, we go through having, you know, the boss's band, Gene Michaels, building things back with Brian Sabian and company, and then, and then he gets reinstated. Uh, we make the first wild card uh, experience. Uh, was 95. Uh, we get knocked out after being up two games to none on the Mariners, and they get swept three straight. Now it goes, you know, one of the game's great managers, Show Walter, and then Gene Michaels not retained either. Um, and uh, but Gene Michael, being the trusted confidant of George Steinbrenner, was unique. He was not retained as general manager, but asked by George Steinbrenner to find a replacement, uh, for which ultimately led to Bob Watson. But but that was such a difficult task for Gene Michael. I think he offered the job to like 11. Well, he might not have offered. He asked like 11 different people, 12, 13, something like that, to interview for it. And he got 11, 12, 13 no's. Uh, and one person that people might have forgotten who did interview for the GM job uh, prior to the 96 season was Joe Torrey. He was interviewed, but he declined and turned it down when it was offered to him. And then, uh, and then ultimately Bob Watson, who was the GM of the Houston Astros, uh, active at the time, got permission, uh, from, I believe it was Drake McLean, who owned the Astros at the time to come in to interview. And he got the job. G. Michael said, you're in. And, uh, and then Bob Watson picks the phone up and calls his former manager from the Atlanta Braves Times and the taps Joe Torrey as a manager and Torrey, uh, accepted the manager position. Uh, so what a great move by Joe Torrey. He turned down the GM job maybe three or four weeks earlier. Uh, and then ultimately becomes the manager of the Yankees, which ultimately leads to, you know, finishing off his Hall of Fame career. He was a, an amazing player and now, uh, you know, polishes that resume with an amazing championship run with Bob Watson leading it. And so Bob Watson leads uh, the baseball ops department for the next two years, makes a couple of two trades, um, picks up Joe Girardi, for instance, from the Colorado Rockies um, and makes some, some tweaks to the roster and imports a few other people and, uh, and with a new manager, a new coaching staff, a couple different players, uh, we go on, you know, with the elevation from our farm system, uh, from the nice gifts that uh, Brian Sabian and Bill Livesey left behind. Uh, Derek Jeter emerges, Mariano Rivera emerges, Andy Pettit emerges, and, you know, and Brian Williams is starting to establish himself. And, you know, the dynasty is upon us. Uh, we win the World Series in 96 by upsetting the Atlanta Braves. And uh, and off we go. Watson stays in the position for one more year. He wins the World Series in 96, becomes the first Afro-American general manager in history, won a world championship in Major League Baseball, uh, takes the team back to the playoffs in 97. But boom, um, you know, he shockingly decides that after two years of working under the boss, you know, it's something he, you know, in his best interest, didn't want to move forward any further. And he resigns and told me he recommended to the boss I replace him, and that caught me way off guard. Uh, I tried to convince Bob Watson for the next hour to, to reconsider, uh, and he was, he said no. Uh, he, he's stepping down, and, and it's the second time a GM under George Steinmeier since I was there had resigned for health reasons. Uh, you know, Bob Quinn had done the same thing back, I think, in 80, after the 88 season, and uh, and his story was quite funny. When he did it, he flew to Tampa unexpected and met with the boss, showed up at his transmarine uh, shipping building, and uh secretary's like, what are you doing here? He's like, I need to meet with the boss. And and uh, so he goes in, you know, George Steimer, as Bob Quinn tells the story, he's like, Quinn, what are you doing here? And he said that, you know, that his priest had given him some advice that uh, if he keeps doing this job this way, he's not going to live long. And they took him to heart. So uh, he opened up his briefcase and, 
tendered his resignation, George Steinmeier looked at the letter, tore it up. He goes, I'm not accepting this. And Bob Quinn said, I thought you might do that. And that's when he opened his briefcase and said, that's why I brought a copy. <laughs> and then he stepped <laughs> out. So, uh, so anyway, Watson years later does the same thing. Uh, and next thing you know, George Steinmeier offers me the job. He calls me that day and asked me to meet with him at the Regency Hotel. And, and uh, my world started to spin rather quickly. It was a job I did not think I could do. I was smart enough not to turn it down at the same time. Um, and, uh, you know, years later, I'm still here. You know, uh, Bob Watson and Gene Michael had prepared me more than I realized for the position. Uh, and at the same time, you know, it's always great to, to take for a team that has talent because it's a player's game when the dust is settled. And, uh, and uh, you know, we all rise in a high tide, right? And so I, I caught a great wave uh, with an amazing, uh, talented group. And, and that's what sustained us and, and me as well for quite some time now. Uh, we're allowed to, to acquire the best of the best and, and, and take a shot with it. It's pretty awesome. You, you're the, you end up being the second youngest general manager ever. You signed a one-year deal in that 98 season. Uh, like you mentioned, the, the, <laughs> the circus that's going, you got Steinbrenner as your boss. You got a great manager <clears throat> in Joe Torrey. Uh, and for those years, you know, with Bob Watson and Michael um, working under them and kind of kind of learning the ropes. But you're always you know, you're always that number two. Now, all of a sudden, you're the man and, and going to a, a spring training with the New York Yankees. It's a pretty daunting thing. It's a pretty cool thing to see. I mean, you got Reggie and Yogi and, and Billy Connors down there holding court. Um what was it like that first spring training when you got the job? You're now the general manager of the New York Yankees. Was it overwhelming or was it something you were, you felt like you were ready for at this point? I, I would say I never felt like I was ready for it. Um, you know, you always, you know, work, you know, I'd say I probably twisted myself into the ground, you know, worrying about things, some things that were even out of my control, you know, but that, that type of attitude has always served me well. And on behalf of all the GMs in the game, you know, the one thing the fans need to know that, you know, we are obviously, we might have a big title and we're obviously sitting at somewhat at the, you know, head of the chair and stuff. Uh, but they're, you know, we are a representation of an entire unit of, of people, a team. So I, I kind of call it the Knights of the Round Table. So, so any general manager in any sport, they have a uh, scouting directors, amateur, international, pro. They've got obviously player development directors. They've got, you know, a team of scouts and coaches and managers. And, you know, it's just, there's an army of personnel. You might be a figurehead that gets to be in front of the, the press and, and, and filter and circulate the information, gather it and, and try to make recommendations and, and plot courses and stuff. But, but, you know, to answer your question, go into my very first spring training as general manager, you know, back in 98, um, I, I never felt like I was the man under George Steinbrenner. That probably would have been the worst thing you could do is, you know, feeling like, you know, you know, you see that gif all the time of a, the Vince McMahon strut on the WWE. Where, you know, you, I think you're served understanding that you're a, a spoke in the wheel, you know, uh, and be thankful that you are uh, part of that wheel. Uh, but there's so much that goes into building a team uh, and putting it together. And the, and, and the only the only, you know, the head figurehead of the entire operation was the boss. And, uh, you know, that I think that probably served me well of recognizing that landscape and understanding that landscape. Um, but, 
you know, it took me a few years to actually feel like he's a, you know, even after you win World Series and stuff, that he's, I actually think I can do this. It took a while for that to sink in, um, where it's okay. It's, I wouldn't say autopilot, but it's, you know, you'll experience, uh, I got uh, the assistant GM under Gene Michael and then Bob Watson, who gave me a lot of latitude, you know, uh, you know, that really served me well. So Bob, when he was the GM for the two years, the game started changing with former veteran general managers transitioned to younger guys and Watson. I remember telling me, Hey, I don't know this guy, Kevin Towers in San Diego. I don't know Billy Bean in Oakland. You know, uh, I'll take Ron Schuler of the White Sox and Pat Gillick of, uh, at the time he might have been with, uh, Seattle, uh, or Toronto. Uh, I, you know, uh, I'll take, you know, John Schuler of Atlanta and, and you take Towers and you take this young guy, Billy Bean and you take, you know, these other various people and we wanted with half the teams. And so I would do my trade discussions with the younger crew that he didn't know as well. And he, he took the trade discussions with the clubs and the older crew. And so, although I was executing on his behalf conversations and stuff, little did I know it was really preparing me for, for things when I was had forced to hit the ground running. And I do believe one of the reasons I got offered the job was the experience. I think the boss was somewhat embarrassed from the two years earlier when G Michael couldn't get anybody to interview for the job or take it. It was a, I mean, you're 11 or 12 or 13 in because the boss was so difficult to work for, uh, that two years later, you know, he, you know, he did say Bob, Bob Watson and G Michael recommended me, but, but it, it's in the back of my mind at times that I wonder if that previous difficult spot of him trying to find someone to take the gig, uh, played also a part in it. I think he believed in me, but, but again, um, uh, you know, that's always something I've wondered a little bit about. So, but anyway, it's, it's worked out really well. I hope for, for the Yankees as well as, as me, it's not an easy job though. And you've been there a long, I couldn't imagine, you know, coming in at your age, the media in New York, that bubble that you're in the talk shows, <clears throat> what they're saying, uh, Hey, could this, who's this guy? Could he handle it? Uh, it had to be an interesting time, but that year you go out and you only won 114 games. You win your first world series, which has had to be unbelievable in your first year, uh, with that general manager job, 99, you move on, you end up beating a, a Braves team that I'm a part of. And, uh, to this day, um, you know, you make that big trade, the Wells for Clemens and or move Wells out. Clemens comes in. Wells is a you know fan favorite. He shoot. He's pitching no hitters with with Babe Ruth's hat on. And that ended up being a key deal for you. I, re I just remember that 99 uh, World Series, though. Like I said, it was the only year I was with the Braves and I played in Yankee Stadium, you know, a few times. But I remember going out to the line. And I think it was game three. It was at your place. And there was something different about it. And all these, you know, as, as players, we just play. We play 162 games. We're kind of, you know, we're kind of conditioned for this. But it was different that day on the line. I kind of looked around and it's like, get a hold of yourself, Brett. And I've been in, you know, these stadiums my whole life. And all of a sudden it was something different. And it not different, not different, bad, different, good. But it was my first World Series. You guys ended up whooping us that the mighty Braves with Maddox, Smoltz and Glavin. I think Smoltz, was in the pen uh, for that series. We had Kevin Millwood, but we went four and out. I mean, that's right in the middle of your run. Uh, you followed up in 2000. You beat the Mets in that in that uh, 
in that all New York World Series. I couldn't imagine being a young general manager like yourself. You're at a point where you can't believe you're off of the job. You don't even know if if you're cut out to do it. Next thing you know, you went back to back to back. I couldn't imagine it being a cooler feeling than that. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens so so fast, right? And all those teams are different. So, you know, the 98, you actually talked about, you know, I did a one-year deal when I got the job. And I remember the boss was asking, let's talk contract. When he offered me the position, and I said, I don't want a contract. Let's just do a handshake. And part of that, I said, these, part of that for me was, I don't know if I can do this job. And I don't, and the fans don't know who I am, even though as the assistant GM, I was kind of behind the scenes because, you know, everybody has to stay behind the scenes as a Yankee unless you're, you know, the manager, general manager, or, or the owner, obviously. So I did a one-year deal not knowing I'm sitting on a powder keg of a hundred, you know, 25 wins and only 50 losses season uh, that we're about to undertake in 98. And then once we beat the Padres and then, and then you're right forced with, uh, you know, how do you, how do you try to maintain, you know, I remember, you know, a lot of conversations that winter, you know, I know, with the team that was a juggernaut like we had in, in 98, you know, we ultimately rolled into, I had to make a tough decision. I know, I knew the boss loved Roger Clemens and, uh, but that's not the reason I did it. I just knew Roger was, had the makeup uh, and the tenacity. He was, you know, a legendary hard worker, you know, an amazing starting pitcher. And, uh, and he had done everything in the game except, you know, win a world championship. So I was, he had just come off of multiple Cy Youngs up in Toronto and, I was like, if we can, you know, capture that, even though it's going to cost a lot, it's going to help propel us, I thought. And uh, so it was a very difficult position to, to trade Wells, Lloyd, and Homer Bush. Uh, but I also thought it would help, you know, keep the laser focus moving forward. And I tell you, as much as I love those guys that we lost, uh, Roger Clemens turned out to be one of the uh, – he always had the, the uh, reputation of being one of the game's great teammates. He was one of those guys you hated to play against – if you could speak to that, I couldn't, but I know from what players that they hated, our players hated facing him because, you know, he was old school and he could buzz you and, and uh, he, he was no joke on the mound. Uh, but if he was on your team, you know, there would be arguably no greater teammate uh, that people could have. And he, he was pretty impactful for the years we had him uh, and really drove our culture and success uh, was one of the key pieces that probably gets uh not spoken enough about. And then, yeah, we, we wound up beating the pods in 98. We beat the Braves in 99. Then we roll into the uh, Mets in 2000 uh, with everything. And the boss every year is like, you can't lose this. That 2000 year was really difficult uh, because, you know, the Mets were really capable just like any of the teams you're facing. And, and uh, the boss was, you know, trying to negotiate a new cable deal. uh, And, uh, you know, with the, with the Dolan family and, uh, and ultimately, which led to the creation of the Yes Network. But but there was so much pressure, not baseball pressure, but business pressure. And he was telling Joe Torre and myself, you better not lose this. You better not lose this. Uh, thankfully, <laughs> we didn't. And, uh, uh, and they were able to pull another one out. And we kept rolling. I mean, ultimately, we could have won four straight. You know, we had the lead in game seven in 2001 against the Arizona Diamondbacks. And, uh, and obviously, if we just get the final three out of that, without giving up uh, the lead, you know, that would have been four straight. And uh, so it's so the 98, 99, 2000, 2001, that's four straight World Series appearances, winning three of four. Then 2003, we're back in the World Series against the Marlins. Uh, we lost to the Marlins and Josh Beckett. And then 2004, you know, we 
we had the chance. We we're one game away from going to another World Series, but the Red Sox came back on us. So, uh, you know, we had a number of different uh, runs and attempts, but this is baseball and there's nothing given. And uh, it's what's great about our sport. Uh, you know, we've had some really talented players and teams along the way, but uh, but just having that level of talent still doesn't guarantee ultimate success. You have to play, you have to play your best baseball at the right time. Oh, one. Where were you for 9 11? Uh, 9 11, I was getting ready. George Stein, I was in Scarsdale, New York, where I lived at the time, and getting out of the shower uh, to head to meet George Steinberg being honored downtown uh, in Midtown Manhattan. I don't know what the honor was, but I was heading that direction. And when I got out of the shower, the, uh, the news was on about what had transpired. Um, and, uh, so that's where I was. Um, and so clearly all things shut down that day and, and, and the world changed uh, from that moment going forward too. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, yeah, and speaking, speaking of that, so, so our world series rings that we've had, so, you know, they, uh, they have the, you know, the insignia, the logo on the front uh, of, on the top of the ring and then on the side, Usually you have the skyline of New York City. So the 2000 ring where we beat the Mets in uh, in 2000 is the last Yankee World Series ring, which has the Twin Towers on it, because obviously 2001, 9-11, 2001, um, that's where we lost the towers. Uh, so that 2000 year in ring, obviously, is you know, every time I see that, it's just, it's just a sad reminder of, of how the world changed and in September 11th of 2001. It was unbelievable. And, and, you know, all of us players, especially, I mean, I think not just players, but I think, you know, Americans probably remember where they were when that happened. You know, we were in Anaheim. The Mariners were in Anaheim for that. We had Tino Martinez on the program a few months back, and he had a pretty interesting take on on how it affected that in the, ga- in the game going forward. Uh, I remember, you know, we took a week off and we we're kind of having inner, you know, amongst our teams discussions, which went to a higher level. We ultimately decided to, to play on. Um, we met up with you and, and, and I hate bringing it up because when people ask me all the time, what was your favorite, you know, who's the toughest pitchers you face? Who's the, who'd you like hitting off the most? What are your favorite stadiums? Yankee stadium. It's old Yankee stadium was always one of my favorite stadiums. I was, I, I hit pretty good there, but it was more so that the event it was, it was coming to New York. It was walking down the street. It was interacting with the people on the street who recognize you. And, you know, they're going to yell at you because the Yankees are going to kick your ass tonight, Boone. I, I reveled in that. I loved coming to New York for that. And it was one of my favorite places. We got to shortly after 9-11, we played you in the second round of the playoffs. I was with that Mariner team, um, that 116-win team. And I remember uh, going to ground zero. And, and myself and Johnny Olerud were a team. And I remember they put the yellow helmets on it. We went down there. What an unbelievable, you know, this is kind of before cell phones where everybody's taking pictures and videos, but I, I, I still have it in my mind watching the, you know, that, that site ground zero was still, the ashes were still oozing. And I'll never forget that uh, going into that series with you guys, you know, when you win that many games in the regular season, we just thought automatically we're going to roll in. Yeah, they're the Yankees, but we're going to beat them. You guys ended up sending us home. You go to Arizona, end up getting beat by all, you know, of all people on the mound, Mariano Rivera. 
But that year, I wanted to talk about this is so special. And I think you still see replays of it today. The the George W. Bush throwing out the first pitch. Yeah, I mean, it's a couple of things uh, you, you, you reminded me of just when we would fly out of New York or fly back to New York that year, you know, you'd, you'd see, you know, uh, you know, the, the site uh, where the people, you know, the, the first responders and the crews working the, the rubble, you know, and digging out. And, um, and it was just, you know, it's a memory you, know, you can never forget. And uh, yeah, having to go down there as a team or, you know, to, to pay respects and, and honor the people that was always definitely transformational, no doubt about that. And so, um, the, uh, your question again was now, I'm sorry, I just lost the, my train of thought. first pitch that, uh, Oh, oh yeah. George, George Bush, uh, Bush threw it still kind of yeah, gives so. me goosebumps seeing it. I wasn't there, but just as a, as a fan watching the game, pretty interesting. Yeah. I, I remember two things. One was, uh, President Bush going down to, to uh, you know, to the site, and you know he he grabbed the bullhorn and addressed everybody that was working the site, and just said, you know, uh, everybody's gonna, you know, we're not gonna forget this. I can't remember what his speech was, but it was a goosebump type speech that you know people will hear America uh, on this issue, uh, and it, the whole country became united uh, again, which is I wish we could be united at all times. Uh, you, you wish a tragedy wouldn't have to hit to unite us. Uh, but uh, since I've been alive, I've never seen the country as united as it was uh, moving forward from that point on, because all the other stuff was less important. And what was important was we're all Americans. And how are we going to, you know, uh, move forward from this as a group? And but yes, when President Bush came to Yankee Stadium, the first time I ever learned what POTUS was, you know, President of the United States, because I had two or three secret service in my office. They had them stationed throughout the entire stadium on on the buildings across the street and stuff. I heard lines trying to get in for that game, you know, it was extra, you know, time consuming because of the, uh, the security you had to get through to get into the ballpark. Uh, but the place knew that, the, you know, President Bush was throwing out the first pitch. It was packed as it should have been in anticipation of that event. And, uh, and you know, that's when, you know, I, I saw the Secret Service guy in my office whisper into his uh, wrist, POTUS is on the move. And that's why I asked him, I was like, what's POTUS? <laughs> President of the United <laughs> States. And so he goes out there on the mound and throws out the first pitch. Uh, and the place, you know, was euphoric. It was extremely emotional. Um, I, you know, it, it, it is definitely one of the all-time memories uh, of, you know, at that time, you know, maybe people want to forget. And don't, but, you know, you, you, we were all in fear of everywhere we went. You know, like, are you safe going anywhere? Is is even in that in that time? Is the president going to be safe in this ballpark? Is there how? What's this risk? And you know, the amount of courage a lot of these players, like yourself, and, and or government officials, or as high as the president of the United States, could you be protected? Would you be protected um, as you're out going about and trying to return to normal day of life? As as the leadership clearly was pushing, we got to return to our everyday life and don't let the terrorists win by altering, you know, uh, you know, living life, you know, to its fullest and, and the way we were before that hit. And, uh, but it was a, it was a wow moment, no doubt about it. And, and, and one of those presidential uh, moments in history that just meant, meant so much. 
that group you had that that you know including 96 the four world series you talked about the the core guys and you know that's jeter and posada and pettit and mariano uh but there was tino martinez and bernie you know joe being at the helm for all those years and and a guy i think i think in new york he gets plenty of credit but just speaking as a peer, as an opponent that played against him a lot, the guy that used to drive us crazy coming into Yankee Stadium was Paul O'Neill. And we'd have those hitters meetings. And, and you guys, you know, you were always adding parts to that core group. And and obviously those players were, were huge in all those world championships. But man, Paul O'Neill was just a thorn in everybody's side. And, and when it came down to it, we'd always say, don't let O'Neill beat you. And I've always had a, a, a spot for Paulie. I, I just, I don't know. I loved playing against him. Uh, obviously, I respected that team a lot uh, with all the success and the way they went about their business, quite frankly. But you you got to see those guys grow up because you were the assistant farm director. So so you were right there with the Jeters, Posada, Pettit, and Mariano. And you watched them grow up from kids into, into four-time world champions at that point. I did. I had a front row seat and, uh, you know, and obviously when Jeter got drafted or when, you know, Posada, you know, was developing through the system as, you know, we had such an amazing system of players and talent and, and, uh, and again, the, the, the leadership that I referenced before Brian Sabian, uh, and, and his team with Bill Libsey that, that were, you know, signing Bernie Williams out of Puerto Rico and, uh, were converting, George Posada from second base to catcher and, and, and forcing that uh, down his throat. He didn't want to be a catcher. Uh, and ultimately he wound up becoming one of the greatest all-time catchers in Yankee history and, uh, with a number of world series rings. Uh, obviously one of the great all-time shortstops and, and Derek Jeter and uh, you go on and on. I had a front row seat. I still remember when we did the deal for uh, uh, Paul O'Neill. Uh, we were at the Radisson Bay Harbor Inn in Tampa. Uh, Gene Michael was, making it a very difficult decision. We had the young Bernie Williams pushing his way up through the system at center field, waiting in the wings at Columbus. And we had an all-star center fielder in Roberto Kelly and, and Gene Mike, and we didn't have a right fielder. Gene Michael made, you know, a, a great move by, I think it might've been Jim Bowden. Uh, forgive me, Jim, if it wasn't you. But, yeah, uh, it was. I think, I think, uh, yeah, he, and Lou Pinello was the manager in Cincinnati and Bowden was the general manager. And, and uh, they sent, or we sent, you know, Roberto Kelly, over to the Reds, uh, you know, he was a Panamanian, you know, star for us at the time. And, but, you know, again, we had depth in the center field position. We used our all-star center fielder for, for an up and coming, you know, but, you know, player in Paul O'Neill that struggled the previous year, hitting the low two hundreds and struggled, you know, in Cincinnati and, and brought him to New York and uh, a nice left-handed bat with a big arm in right field. And, and, it was just a magical run. I remember when we got him, you know, show Walter was the manager and, and uh, you know, Gene Michael and show Walter was like, you can't hit lefties, but you know, we're going to give him a chance, you know, to work through that. And, and so Buck show Walter and Gene Michael had some patience, gave an opportunity, kept giving him a little bit more to chew on and get his feet under his ground. And, and he thrived in New York and yes, he was one of the cogs. He, that's why he's, he's out in Monument Park where he belongs. I and mean, he was a, he was definitely uh, one of the stars for that, you know, 90s run, you know, which I call like a secretariat. It's one of those like rare talents that comes along those teams, the 96, 98, 99, 2000. And those teams that were constantly knocking on the doors. He was a part of that on a yearly basis. And, and none of it happens without any of them, you know, uh, Paul and Neil included. 
Now we'll get to your current skipper, my brother. Uh, 03 season, you trade for Aaron, he comes over. Uh, we've seen the homer a million times. <laughs> but uh, I happened to be in the booth for that. I didn't say much. I remember Fox calling me that they were trying out that third man in the booth. And I just, we just won 93 or 94 games in Seattle. We didn't make the postseason. And I kind of just wanted to go home. But I got convinced to come. And I thought, well, I'll get to see Aaron play. It'll be the Red Sox. It'll be interesting. Um, and I remember that, that series and Aaron was struggling and I've told the story before, but I go to his apartment and, and Aaron's kind of just kind of, I don't want to call it sulking, but he was sulking, Brian. And I walk in as big brother. I don't have a worry in the world. I've got to do the, do the show tomorrow night. <laughs> you know, I got to be up in the booth, but I don't, I don't have to hit. And I said, Aaron, what, what are we going to do? Sit here and sob all night? We're going to feel sorry for ourselves? You're, you're having a terrible postseason. You don't think I've had a terrible, terrible run? Oh, you don't know what it's like? I said, I do know what it's like. I said, flip over my bubblegum card, and, and you'll know that I know what it's like, too. It just so happens you're doing it on the big stage right now. And I kind of was trying to give him that big brother pep talk, and I said, listen, think about it this way. You go out there tomorrow. You hit a sack fly. You move a runner that scores a run. You turn a big double play and you guys win tomorrow. Everybody's not going to give a crap about Aaron Boone having a rough series. Remember that. I get to the ballpark and he's not in the lineup. And as a brother, I'm going, oh, that kind of stinks, you know. And then I see him come out on deck and I'm I'm seeing Wakefield. I said, well, maybe he's got a chance off Wakefield because he's so unorthodox. And I said, right now, the typical fastball two seamer slider, Aaron's got no chance. Maybe he needs to have a wiffle ball pitcher. He hits that home run. One of the most unbelievable moments I've ever had. I mean, I was speechless. I was so happy for him because I know as players how hard this game is. And I never had to do it in New York, but on that stage when you just want to do so well, so bad, and then you get that opportunity and and it's not a sack fly. It's one of the biggest homers ever as a brother. I remember how cool that was. And that was the, you know, that was the series where a lot of stuff went on that the, the Zimmer and Pedro throwing him down. And, and I, I remember being in the booth for the first time as a current player, it's hard because you have to be critical. You can't just smooth over everything. So they put me on the spot. You guys had Soriano playing second and they'd say, well, well, Brett, what did Soriano do wrong there? And, and my honest answer would be, well, he's not a real good second baseman. He should be in left field, but I, I have to kind of comb it over. Well, you know, we all make those mistakes, been there before. So I was learning up in the booth, you know, this is tough as a player, but watching that series, how cool it was for my brother. I think I went down in your locker room, which I would never go into that Yankees locker room. As much as I respected the players, it's just something you don't do as a player. You don't go into the enemy's, enemy's room. I went in there, gave him a hug because it was that big of a moment. Left. Uh, you guys end up going on. You lose to the Marlins. But that offseason is kind of – and I don't know the story, and I haven't talked to you about it, Brian, and I really haven't talked to Aaron about it, but I just have a gut feeling that that's kind of where the Brian Cashman-Aaron Boone relationship started. And I'm just guessing, but that offseason, he has that that knee injury playing basketball. And knowing Aaron – and the character, the level of character that he has. I remember him calling me and kind of being emotional. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I got to be honest. I said, well, there's not too many people I know 
in your position, the first thing they'd think is to be honest. But I know he came to you and it was probably the toughest thing he ever had to do and tell you exactly what happened. And he knows it's written right there in the contract. And it ends up changing Yankee history. You end up bringing A-Rod in and uh, him being the third baseman. Um, was that a tough time for you when a player comes to you, tells you what happened? You're told by management, well, you're going to – he ended up getting released and bought out of his contract and was never a Yankee again. Was that a tough position for you to be in? What went through your mind uh, during that whole decision process? Yeah, it was uh, definitely a difficult process. So, yes, I acquired Aaron Boone, as you said. I acquired him in that summer, and he was going to be our everyday third baseman. He was obviously a great defender with pop, uh, was going to be a nice uh you know, addition to the, to this team as we tr- take our final push and he was struggling and, and yeah, it was, what an amazing home run uh, and impactful. And, and again, I, watching him address, you know, speak on Fox post game, you know, kind of just, he had, he had difficulty talking, but he was, his interview on, on the field was amazing. You, you know, right on kind of cue did exactly what you should have done. Like he just kind of let, no one was saying anything because they were letting the moment speak for itself. The moment was that big. Um, and that was, those Red Sox Yankee teams were just, I mean, you're talking about the, a big, a heavyweight boxing match on a, on a, whether it was in season or postseason that you're going to ever find. I mean, you talk about the, the, the talents on both levels uh, was just uh, spectacular. You know, Pedro and, and Ortiz and Manny and obviously all the guys we had, the Jeters and, and the Posadas and, and Bernie's and O'Neill's and Tino's, all of those guys. So it was just awesome. So yeah, fast forward now, you know, we lose the Marlins. It's the winter time and we're going about our business. The Red Sox are trying to make a deal with the Texas Rangers to get A-Rod over there. And, you know, we're kind of sitting on the sidelines watching it play out, you know, cause we didn't have a need. And then, yeah, all of a sudden I get this call from Adam Katz, you know, who represents the agent and I, the agent for Boone, for Aaron Boone. And, and so, and I've had a longstanding relationship as has George Steinbrenner with, you know, uh, Adam Katz and Tom Rich, Tom Rich and George Steinbrenner are extremely close. God rest Tom Rich's soul. And, and, uh, and all of a sudden here we are in a very difficult situation. Aaron Boone was a free agent at the end of the year. He had one more year of, uh, of arbitration, I believe. And then he was going to be a free agent. And now we're in a situation where he hurts his knee, violating the contract playing basketball and he's you know he blew out his knee so he's not going to play at all and uh george steinbrenner's talking to me like well, what are you going to do a contract's a contract let's see how you handle this which you know he was you know politely diplomatically he was signaling me i know what you got to do let's see if you do the do what you're supposed to do because he even wanted you know i know he didn't want to be a part of it uh so you know i know years turn the clock back years gone by you know, when I first started with the Yankees in an administrative role, I was about the same age as a lot of the players come through the system. I used to used to go out with them after games in the minor leagues, and and all of a sudden when I became the assistant farm director. I remember one time one of the players I was tight with uh, was like, "Ah, oh, this is awesome! Now you can start. Doing, you'll be doing the contracts. You can start getting me, you know, fifty or a hundred dollars an extra a month in my deal." And that was kind of like a turning point for me because I was like realized, geez, I can't get too close to this situation anymore. Like I'm going to do this job. You know, I got to, I got to honor the job and that puts you in, you know, in the difficult spots at times. So 
So I've kept my distance since I built a good relationship with players, but I don't live in our clubhouse. I'm not like you're going to see me down in the sauna, hanging out with the boys, you know, in the clubhouse, stuff like that. It's, if I go in, I do my business, I go out. And, uh, and it was a very difficult position for me to be in because, you know, you, you don't want to do anything that, you know, hurts anybody. Uh, and at the end of the day, I was forced to, to, uh, you know, execute the clause in the contract and call up the, you know, the Adam Katz and, and, and I can't remember if I talked directly to Aaron Boone or not. I certainly hope I did, but it's so long ago now that, but just, uh, you know, apologizing for having to, you know, uh, to, to terminate the contract essentially with cause. And I think it was about a $5 million or five, five and a half million dollar, uh, salary that, uh, now comes off the books and we have a vacancy at third base, which ultimately led to us trading for Alex Rodriguez. And, you know, he was willing to move from short to, to second, uh, short, short, from shortstop to third base. And, and that none of that happens if it wasn't for, you know, a basketball game that was played out in California at some point that winter. And you mentioned those, uh, yeah, you, you, <laughs> I get a lot and, of grief for my, and, go ahead. Yeah. And, yeah. And I, to, to restate everything you just said, you know, the character uh, that Aaron Boone showed at that point, you know, to, to, to be honest about this is what happened and this is how it happened. You know, I think we all know that, that there's a majority of people that would have would have gone another way and come up with some other narrative of what happened. Um, And, uh, but Aaron Boone, you know, walked that straight line that I'm sure comes from mom and dad uh, and family and, and, uh, said, no, this is exactly what happened. And now we'll just deal with the, the results of it for better or for worse. And, and that shows a, a strength and a character that, that obviously is, has been lacking in this, in this world for quite some time. Unfortunately, it's, you, know, you, you like to think the, the masses of population would have that type of strength and ability and character, but, but unfortunately we don't have as much of that walking around. So, uh, so, you know, uh, Aaron Boone is obviously a very, rare person and uh to be very uh honest and straightforward because even you said back then like a lot of people don't have the cell phones that you know may have captured this or that he very well could have potentially gotten away with you know coming up with a different narrative that could retain the contract but he knew that wouldn't be right to do and and he was going to honor his contract yeah aaron he's he's like his he's like his dad you know i always tease my dad i said if you ran a red light you'd probably go uh go turn yourself in. That's just the kind of guys they are. You know, they're straight arrows. I, they're a little, for me, they're a little nerdy, but they're good men and, and they are of strong character. Um, yeah. And about me in the booth, I, I get a lot of slack from my teammates. I came back, they said, you were terrible. You didn't say anything. I said, listen, I'm telling you, I was emotional at the time. I had nothing to say when he hit that home run. And that's exactly what my reaction was. And, you know, you've got the guy in your ear, the the director down in the truck, and he's going, Brett, what are you doing? Say something. Say something. I, I couldn't say anything. I didn't have words. And then he comes back to me and he says, no, that's perfect. Less is more. Less is more. So what you saw up there was just I couldn't. Brian, I couldn't believe what I just saw. I thought. There's my brother. He stinks. He gets benched today. He's pinch hitting. He just hit one of the biggest home runs of all time. The most unreal the farthest thing in the world how he was feeling last night when i talked to him in his bed the last thing that i thought was going to happen just happened and it, you know like he said you you saw me up there just standing there that was my real reaction i had i had no words for that moment but definitely a, a, 
a cool moment that I'll, that I'll always remember. You talk about the Red Sox and and the Yankees having these <clears throat> these just wars out on the field. Very cool, very cool being in the league at that time and seeing that. 04 is one of the one of the greatest comebacks. Those Red Sox uh, came back and beat you guys in, in the ALCS uh, four straight. That's one of the most unbelievable feats I've seen in in sports. That just doesn't happen, especially in the Red Sox Yankees. You're down three. That's over. The fact they came back and won, they broke the curse. That kind of changed that division, didn't it? I mean, you, that's when Theo kind of came on the scene, Francona. Uh, you know, fast forward a little bit to 08 when the Rays start, start coming on a little bit. And now all of a sudden, You've got one of the best, the the best division in baseball. Yeah, no question about it. The uh, the talent, both on the field and with the roster, the front office with Theo, the manager Terry Francona. I mean, you're talking about Hall of Fame, uh, Hall of Famers, you know, all the way through. And uh, and that that series, you know, baseball is obviously about talent, about executing at the right time, staying healthy. I tell you, the, the biggest thing that I think changed that entire series, uh, one of your former teammates was playing on our team at that time. Uh, John Olerud was our first baseman and, uh, in 04. And he, you know, basically broke his foot during, uh, during the Red Sox series. Uh, we won the first three games. We were just one win away. I can't remember what game it was. Uh, but, uh, losing Olerud, I thought was probably, you know, a huge game changer for the, I don't, I don't think if we don't lose Olerud, we don't lose that series. Um, I think we want it going on to, to play the Cardinals in the world series, but yeah, he, he, he suffered a Liz Frank fracture in his foot. It was a unique injury. Uh, he got replaced with Tony Clark the rest of the way. And, and it just seemed like at the time, you know, Tony, that every time he kept coming up was, you know, a key spot or what have you. And then ultimately Tony, like, you know, he was struggling but like Aaron Boone at the time, you know, back in his time, you know, there is one at bat where Tony obviously uh, was able to, to 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 do something impactful in Fenway Park. And again, game of inches, he hits a double down the right field line that bounces in the stands. If it doesn't bounce in the stands, again, we're in the World Series. And and that that 2004 comeback, historic comeback by the Red Sox, doesn't happen. So so like anything else, I mean, this is an amazing sport to to follow and stay tuned and be at the edge of your seats because at any moment it's a game changing moment. And uh, a few of those, you know, that's what losing teams come up with. They come up with reasons all they can point to why the series changed, what, what did impacted you in an adverse way that, that had the whole thing slip away over the course of time. And, and we were just unable to finish that off. And, uh, and yeah, once that happened, obviously they rolled into the, into the Cardinals and, and uh, broke the curse and became world champs once again. Oh, nine. You win your fourth world series as uh, general manager, different cast of characters the Tinos and, and the Paulie O'Neill's are long gone, but just as fulfilling for you. Oh, nine winning that world series as the, as the first three. Absolutely. I mean, everyone's every one of those teams we've had, a, you know, a little tweaks and differences here and there. I mean, obviously during the, the early run with the 96, 98, 99, 2000, you had the core was a part of it. And then towards the end, you still had Pettit and Jeter, Rivera, Posada. Uh, but, but it was different, uh, different crew, but still uh, up against an amazing Philadelphia franchise. They won the world series the previous year. And, and then uh, thankfully we were able to, 
find a way past them with, you know, but we had some new leadership, new impactful people like CC Sabathia come in here and, and transform us and, 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 you know, be the eighth that, you know, he had been his entire career. And, uh, so we had a nice mesh with, with, uh, adding a Nick Swisher and a Mark Deshera and AJ Burnett. And obviously I mentioned the CC along with a lot of the other players that we already had in place. And, um, yeah, and it was a magical year to open up the new stadium. You know, uh, that was another thing. It was it was something too that I thought was really special. The boss, uh, his health was declining at that point. You know, he not that that was being shared with any of us in the front office or on the team. You know, the family knew whatever they were dealing with, and George Steinbrenner was was giving uh, turning things over to his kids. You know, uh, to to run. You know, by necessity. So I was in. You know, real proud and happy for him to, uh, that he could witness his family, his kids deliver like he had done so many times before, deliver a championship uh, for the city in, uh, uh, of New York and Yank and for the Yankee universe that, you know, that's got to be doubly proud because not only are you, uh, you know, again, adding another world championship being the greatest team in, in major league baseball uh, for that given year. Uh, but to have your, your kids do it as you used to do it um, and had to be uh, really satisfying for him as well as, you know, Hal, Hank and, uh, and Jessica and Jenny, uh, you know, the boss's uh, sons and daughters for them to be able to deliver that uh, for him, you know, was very special in the first year in the new Yankee stadium that now that George built, not George Herman Ruth, but George M Steinbrenner, um, you know, that, uh, that was spectacular. 2017, your executive of the year. Um, and then you hire Aaron. How did that come about? I remember when he called me and said, said uh, he had talked to you. This is long before you made the actual hire. But how, how did that whole thing come to fruition? You know, I, I was calling around like anybody's in a position that if you're making changes and you have a vacancy, you start calling people you respect around the game. Uh, yeah, you, you charge your uh, the people that you're working with. Hey, who do you suggest? Who should I talk to? Who should I be interviewing? Uh, and you put together a list, and it's quite long, quite often, to be honest. And then you whittle it down. And and so as I was bouncing around with people I respect, Aaron's name came up, and uh, I was told, Hey, this is someone you need to be speaking to. So you know, I was like, Why? What's he been up to? And um, they said that the Minnesota the Minnesota twins were talking to him at the time about joining the front office and then, and potentially leading to eventual, you know, uh, this is rumored. I don't know. I never got it validated, but they're talking about a front office position that might very well lead to him in their dugout in the future, you know, uh, you know, down the line after he's learned, you know, their culture and, and see how that fit works and blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, I was like, I had enough people mention his name and, we only had Aaron Boone. I only had Aaron Boone for that, you know, second half of July, August, September, and October. So that's what four months was my you know, exposure to, to Aaron Boone. And that's from the front office being three floors up. I don't, I don't really know Aaron Boone very well, believe that or not. Uh, but his name came up uh, and from people I respected. So I decided, you know what? I respected the people in Minnesota. Uh, so much that I was like, if they think something's there, that's enough for me. So, uh, so I wound up 
getting his number and reaching out and asking. He was living in Arizona, but for some reason, I thought he was living in Cincinnati. I remember, hey, what's up in Cincinnati? He's like, I'm in Arizona. Oh, area code. No. Same phone number. Oh, maybe that was it. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so um, anyway, I said, would you be interested in interviewing for this? And he was like, hell yeah. And I'll be honest, I didn't have any thought on what it would be like with him. Uh, he kind of came in as a, as a dark horse. I went into that interview process. You know, again, I always fall back on horse analogies. So there was two candidates that I was like, I'm really interested to hear from them. I want to see what's under the hood here. Uh, so I thought that, you know, we had two favorites, so to speak, that I was heard enough about from afar or seen things from afar that are like more likely than not, this is, this is going to emerge as, as a, as, as the next one, I would think. Um, but you open, you enter this process open-minded. And I remember, I think Aaron Boone might've been the sixth of the seven people I interviewed at the time. And we could have gone to, you know, we had a second phase of candidates if we wanted to go there, if we didn't find, but I remember we were not just me, it was pencils down, you know, when, when we had that sixth interview, if I was right on that number, I was blown away. I mean, every, you know, and the way these interviews go up, you, you, you get your leadership, you know, I call it the Knights of the Round Table. So I have a big participation of people that have contributed a lot of you know, questions. It's kind of like a worksheet you work off of. Um, and, you know, the interviews, you know, then take on a life of its own based on the answers and the follow-up questions and stuff. And and say it was seven, eight, nine hours, what have you. They're, they're pretty exhausting stuff to try and unpack and learn as much as you can about the candidate. And I tell you what, it, I was blown away by, uh, as was our entire crew. And the whole thing, the only thing I kept thinking about was, is this real? Can this really be, you know, you know, you can be fooled in interviews, uh, you know, and so it was the, and so two things I came away with, it, can this really be real? And would the Steinbrenner family allow me to hire someone that's never managed or coached before? Uh, and would I be have the conviction on it to, to willing to, to take that deep dive? And, um, but I walked out of that interview curious because, you know, you have to, cross-pollinate with your own staff. I didn't know what they were thinking. So I had to have my individual touch points with everybody about, you know, because you don't want to damage any anybody or, you know, with letting them know what you're thinking. So I'd have to have my individual touch points with everybody. And the feedback I was getting from everybody was exactly how I was feeling. He, he controlled the room uh, and his answers were in alignment with everything that we believed in. And, uh, and I was willing, you know, without a doubt to invest in, in him um, because I thought he was going to be, you know, the best person to help us as we move forward. And, uh, and I think it's been a tremendous hire for him. I mean, for us, uh, and he's, you know, I think our players love playing for him. I've been very lucky because uh, I've you know, been around now a long time in the general manager position. And I've had an you know, amazing hall of fame manager, Joe Torrey, an amazing, uh, you know, manager and Joe Girardi, those guys for 10 years each. And, uh, and now Booney, who just signed on. Uh, so I think what's that going to make, you know, seven years total, you know, with this new contract. Um, so, uh, we don't make change very often. Um, we believe in, 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 you know, I think we have a lot of stability and, and conviction in the people that, 
that lead in that chair. And, and I just think that Aaron Boone is, is proving himself, uh, you know, uh, so many times over, he's had to manage obviously this new difficult circumstances in New York, you know, um, that, uh, that is not like any other chair and he did it, you know, uh, with ease and class and style. And, um, and we've had some really good teams that have been knocking on the door and I'm looking forward to punching through here at some point with him sooner than later. Uh, but yeah, he blew us away in that interview. Very cool. 1998, he came into the game as a general manager, 2021. How much has the game changed? What are your biggest challenges? So how much has the game changed since I took over as a GM? Yep. Wow, so much. Uh, you know, the, you know, it's been an explosion of, of technology, an explosion of information, and information from analytics. Uh, you know, analytics were always, you know, which is statistics essentially, is always something that's been a big part of our sport and our game for, for uh, forever. Uh, and I remember Gene Michael, um, you know, always talking about, you know, the numbers and how he would put teams together and, and, uh, but ultimately now it's, you know, you're allowed, you're allowed and capable of measuring, measuring everything that takes place on the field in such a way that you can form, you know, a lot of, uh, assessments and opinions as you move forward about, you know, the best strategies, the best, uh, what's real, what's not real that's baked in on, on the field that you can augment with your, your, uh, your pro scouting side. And, uh, and it's become a really powerful, uh, you know, tool to, to incorporate into your operation. And I think obviously everybody's uh, utilized it now to, 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 to the fullest degree possible. Um, I think the, uh, I remember when I first started with the Yankees, you know, uh, and then we've gotten, I remember having a meeting with the, the boss at some point and uh, there were certain tools in the toolbox we weren't using. Um, and I asked, him if he would empower us to do some adjustments. One of it was creating an analytical team. You know, we didn't have one, you know, and at the time that we'd be in the Oakland days, Theo Epstein and the Red Sox and amongst others were starting to emerge with their operations that included that tool. And, and I was like, Hey, we're the New York Yankees. We should be having every tool in the toolbox available to us. And we, you know, and he authorized us uh, starting that program. He authorized us starting a mental conditioning program where we had, you know, a director of uh, mental skills on, on, you know, for the major league and minor league side and, um, you know, not just trying to build the physical side of the athletes trying to, you know, playing in New York's difficult and dealing with our press is difficult. It's the largest media market in the world that, you know, the, the demands, the accountability for our fans, as well as our ownership is, is, uh, higher than anywhere else. And so, try to give our players the tools and our staff, you know, our manager, our coaches, our players, the, our front office, the, you know, some tools to, to help navigate that and uh, really important stuff. And so, you know, under his leadership, he sanctioned all those things. And, and uh, we've tried to certainly add the best of the best to honor him as we always do is to try to have the best of the best. So our fans can enjoy a, uh, a team that has a chance to compete on a yearly basis for a championship. And, um, so it's changed completely from performance science to athletic training to the development of players and how they're training with the pitching changes, uh, you know, you've seen, uh, along the way and how we train pitching, how you train hitting, how you, uh, utilize, uh, data, uh, the technology side, um, 
you know, there's certainly tricks to the trade of, of learning what it is and how to incorporate it and then how to share it. Um, but, uh, but it's a completely different operation, uh, running a baseball team from, you know, than it was when I first started without a doubt. And, and there's a lot of things now that we've learned that, that you thought worked doesn't. Some of the things have been reaffirmed that you thought worked does. Uh, and so there's always that pendulum swing. Sometimes it can swing too far. Um, and you swing it back, you know, uh, to, to, you know, it's always that, that you live and you learn, you adjust and you grow and you evolve. Uh, but the one thing I'm proud about is I think we've been very open-minded every step of the way about, you know, this is what we think we know and, and, and try to determine what's out there that we don't know and, and see if it's something that would benefit us. What advice do you give to a young kid wants to, wants to work in the front office, wants to be a part of a big league, big league front office? Uh, obviously the, you know, the internship route is something that worked for me, uh, and there could come in various forms and fashions. You can go through the college ranks, um, you know, cause a lot of college coaches eventually go into the pro teams. Um, it could be in a, a major league baseball commissioner's office. You'd be in a minor league, uh, affiliate. Uh, it obviously could be with a major league, uh, franchise. Uh, it could be with a player's agent, you know, uh, an agency, um, there's so many different avenues. So, you know, and I point that out because for instance, like, you know, we have a very now famous assistant general manager in Jean Afterman. She's, you know, uh, you know, famous in fact that because she is very talented, clearly she helped us, uh, recruit players coming out of Japan, but she used to be a player agent and that's how I got exposed to her. She was, uh, instrumental in getting Soriano out of, uh, uh, a deal with the Hiroshima carp in Japan. And, and allowing us to import Hideki Matsui as a free agent recruit from Japan and amongst others. Uh, she, she with Don Nomura helped get Hideo Nomo to break the free agent side of it, uh, and come to the Dodgers. And so I got exposed to, to Gene Afkinman from being across the table negotiating with her and Don Nomura, her, uh, agency's, uh, leader, uh, over Hideki Arabu back, I think it was 98. And, uh, and she was so impactful. Uh, that at one point when Kim Ang, who's now the general manager uh, with the Miami Marlins, um, when she left us, I signed on. I asked Gene Afterman if she would come over. So you you can you know wind up getting the biggest thing is getting your foot in the door or getting exposure to people that are in this arena. So that, as I said, Gene Afterman is an example. It could come from the players' agent side. It could you know uh, there's many of you know many of college. Uh, coaches that moved on into the pro ranks uh, eventually, whether it's in the front office or player development or, or managing or coaching. And, you know, if you're going through an athletic director's program, you know, at, you know, any university throughout the country, big or small, you know, that's a different Avenue. And then the internship route, which is I'm an example, and many other people are examples of too. Um, you know, so it, if you're good enough to play college baseball and then maybe have a chance to, to, to go play professionally, but I think just, Obviously, that's not that's a good that's not a bad route too. You know, so I had a chance to play four years of college and then get an internship and combine all those skills. And if you know, we have Matt Daly's our pro scouting director, and he he played you know college at Bucknell. He played professionally at uh, with Colorado and and with the Yankees at the, in the big league level. And and uh, and he's a dual threat because now he's transitioned to the you know, scouting world and front office executive, and now he's a pro scout and. 
Uh, so there's just so many different avenues. It's the one great thing about, you know, uh, whether it's me or others, there's not one way to skin this cat. Uh, you know, it's just like anything else, what makes the world go around, whether it's politics, whether it's business, it's about connecting with people, uh, getting to know as many people as you can, getting exposed to a lot of different circumstances so you can evolve. And the one thing I would tell people more than anything is you never know who's watching you do what you do while you're doing it. Uh, because if you're going about your business the right way, um, somebody's going to take notice that there's something special going on there. And when they have a chance to build a team uh, in whatever environment or company or sport, uh, they may very well be knocking on your door out of the blue uh, and say, Hey, I'm, I'm launching the following program, or I got an opportunity to go this direction with this, you know, athletic team or, or college team or business entity, whatever, uh, would you be interested in the following category? And that's how the world seems to work. And it's worked for me and it's worked for others. So, uh, so that's why I usually share, you you know, whatever you're doing in the present to the best of your possible abilities, because you don't know who's watching you do that while you're doing it. Those people can become your mentors and your difference makers. And that's how that served me well. Brian Cashman, it's been a pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. Very informative. People in the Boom Podcast are going to love it. Uh, what we do each and every Boom Podcast at the end, we bring back the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, to ask a question from the fans. Dan. Gentlemen, how are you guys doing? Super, hey, Dan. Man, how are you? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right, Brian, we got two for you. One comes from Lewin Greatneck, and he wants to know, what is your workday like? How many hours do you sleep during the season? I sleep better when we're winning, and I sleep less when we're losing. <laughs> um, you know, to be quite honest, uh, so workdays, you know, especially during the season, you, you wake up, uh, first thing you're doing is uh, you're going to wind up looking at the 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 you know, we call it our base page. So I'll see whatever amateur scouting reports have been loaded into our system from, from one of our, you know, from our area scouts or cross checkers. I'll look at the, the pro scouting reports that had been loaded in the system from the night before. I'll look at our, uh, you know, I would have seen the affiliate box scores the previous night before I went to bed for how our minor leaguers have done at their certain levels. But then I have a chance to now do the deep dive and, and look at the affiliate uh, uh, reports, you know, filed by our manager, hitting coaches, pitching coaches. Um, and, you know, then obviously uh, the biggest and most important is your athletic training reports from top to bottom. So on your major league club, as well as your minor league affiliates. So you start your day with the coffee and a deep dive into, you know, that's kind of like the heartbeat of your, your franchise. Uh, every month is a different pressure point, whether it's in, in July is the amateur, I'm sorry, in June is, is uh, used to be the amateur draft. July is now the amateur draft at the all-star break. Uh, you have obviously the international signings coming that summer. You got the trade deadline, you know, uh, so, you know, just one thing after another, depending on what time of year it happens to be, uh, it's going to dictate, you know, where your focus is going to be a little bit more, but it's, it's usually, uh, you know, extremely busy times regardless. And the last question is for me, a nod to Seinfeld. How can I become the assistant to the traveling secretary? Because that sounds like a fun job. Yeah, the uh, I tell you what, I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, back in the day, um, you know, we, uh, you know, the office I she, I had at the old Yankee Stadium was right in front of, right out in front of the legal counsel's office. Our legal counsel might have been Bob Dowling 
at the time. It could have been a guy named John Ertman. It could have been a guy named David Sussman. I'm not sure who it was at the time, but their fax machine was contained in my office. And I still remember uh, pulling off a fax machine, uh, a fax to send into the general counsel's office. And it was, you know, about Seinfeld. And they initially asked George Steinbrenner to play himself uh, in that. And uh, is my recollection. And he turned that down because at that time it wasn't the greatest sitcom in the history of television that it ultimately became. Uh, but I know he loved that show. Uh, he loved that, uh, you know, he had a prominent role in it as, and then obviously George Costanza, you know, um, there was an episode in there that where he spent the night under his desk. And that I did that one time, you know, I know Buck Showalter when he was the manager of the Yankees, he, he had a Murphy couch, uh, a Murphy bed in his manager's office. Cause if games went late we had a day game the next day, we'd just spend the night in his office. And I wound up doing that one night, uh, for the same reasons, you know, in the office. And there was a Seinfeld episode where he spent the night underneath his desk. And I was, I kind of did the same thing one night too, because, you know, having to leave to turn back around the next morning made no sense with the clubhouse down below and you can shower just spent the night at the stadium. So, uh, so kind of lived it in real life myself. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Mailbag. Right. You know that sound, don't you? Mailbag time, Dan. It is the mailbag time. And this one comes from Jennifer in St. Louis. And she wants to know, hey, Brett, what are your holiday plans? Holiday plans. Well, we got Christmas Eve at my place. Obviously, Christmas Day. And uh, family-wise, I think I'm we're gonna we're gonna take a trip up to the mountains, do a little skiing for a couple of days. We're gonna go up to Mammoth, but other than that, pretty casual. Nothing nothing major. I think uh, right after the new year, we're gonna head up to Mammoth for for a few days of skiing. You know, I don't remember the last time I was cold skiing. Usually, when I go skiing, it's spring skiing, and I might have to wear actually a hat. <laughs> I don't like that. Take, I like when it's take a California boy out of the I, out right. Of the sun. I think it's 50, 51 and sunny at about noon. Skiing a maybe a you know maybe a, a t shirt and a vest. Uh, maybe maybe somebody. I, I think I think it's going to be cold. So now I'm looking forward to it. Kids love to ski. I'm uh, looking forward to a little bit of a break. Maybe somebody should get you a snuggie for Christmas. All right, that's going to do it for the Red Moon Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the the voice of the Boom Podcast. Executive producer is all taken care of by Rich Herrera. Digital content gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give it a five-star rating. Share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here at the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Booner, flip the bat. We're out.